Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Danny McNamara of Embrace, one of my all-time favourite bands from the 90s and the, and the noughties. Embrace I saw many times at festivals and live in Southampton. They have so many great anthemic tunes, which we talk about in, in the interview. Danny goes in detail on the songwriting process, playing live, um, the early days of the band, getting signed, recording and really what they're up to now in terms of the secret list and getting music and, and exclusive content to their fans. It's a fantastic interview and a really good chat. Danny was brilliant. So I'll stop waffling and play the interview and I'll be back afterwards to talk some more. Welcome to the podcast, Danny McNamara. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good as well. Yeah, excited to talk about uh, Embrace, uh, old and new. Um, as I said, just off the mic, um, Embrace were like a, I guess, a major part of my early twenties, late teens, in terms of just songwriting, anthemic tunes, and just festivals and things. It's just like a major staple. So <laughs> it's, it's amazing to speak to you. So thanks ever so much for coming on, Danny. Uh, it's my pleasure. How have you been getting on? I mean, this has been the question I always ask the guests on the on on the podcast. Is, you know, this has been probably you know one of the worst years in history. But what's your experience of sort of the lockdown and and things been? Um, well, I mean, obviously, like I feel for the world and, you know, it seems to be getting crazier and crazier by the month, you know, but mm. um, from a personal point of view, me and my wife have just had a little girl. And so I would I would have been at home anyway. And sort of lockdown hasn't really affected me so much from that point of view, because probably 80, 90 percent of what I do is at home anyway, writing. Mm. So... Um, obviously, the gigs have been affected, and uh, our income has been affected, and loads of my friends, uh, you know, have been really badly affected, and our road crew and people like that, which, mm. you know, I really feel for them, and, it, and it's really bad. From, but from a personal sort of day-to-day -day, uh, point of view, for me, uh, you know, it's probably affected me a lot less than a lot of other people. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be any kind of light at the end of the tunnel in terms of you know how what we're going to do even when we get out of it uh, next year even if that is a, a possibility and how you know you mentioned road crews and venues and, and how on earth things are going to get back to some sort of normality in terms of live music i'm always i'm always um i'm like barack obama i'm cautiously optimistic <laughs> things go up and down and the loonies control the asylum but <laughs> You know, we're we're on a curve that's going in the right direction, I feel, if you zoom out far enough, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's a good way of looking at it, really. You have to be positive, otherwise it will be a very doom and gloomy kind of world. <laughs> Let, let's, yeah. let's have everything crossed that, you know, at some point I'll be going to see the bands uh, that I love live again. I really, um, I really miss playing live. Uh, we were... We were fortunate enough to be one of the very last bands to play just before lockdown, and so... Uh, that gig in Leeds that we did was really memorable. Um, everybody knew that they were they were they were they weren't going to be free for a long time, and so it's kind of a big party. And hopefully, when we come out of lockdown, when it's safe again, there'll be that same atmosphere. We'll be back again because everybody will be so relieved. You know, we'll all want to we'll all want to get back and 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 have a good time again and just be together because that's what human beings are all about. Let's go back to embrace the early days. You formed the the band uh, with your brother in in sort of nineteen ninety. So with yeah. you with you and you and Richard, what what was kind of the music playing in your household when you were younger, and what got you into into music as well? 
So really early on, it was bands like U2 and Echo and the Bunnymen, uh, The House of Love, Ride, PJ Harvey, R.E.M., The Smiths, basically sort of all the guitar bands that were in NME as well. Uh, NME, Melody Maker Sounds, I used to get them every week and read them religiously. And, you know, bands like The Pixies at Stone Roses, you know, just basically following that lineage through you know, bands like Suede, um, and then and then Oasis, uh, and then Gomez. And we were part of that, you know, it was like, we came along and then Gomez came along. And then after that, I guess you, they, there was like the Strokes were the next big one. And then probably the Arctic Monkeys maybe, mm. you know. So yeah, I, I, I sucker for guys with guitars really, mainly. Although, you know, PJ Harvey obviously is one with the guitar. Guitars, yeah. I guess, the main thing. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of writing then, I mean, when did you think you had like lyrics uh, or you were able to find stuff to say in terms of songwriting? Well, I wrote a song called Retread um, and I was just sort of singing it in my bedroom and me and Richard used to pass tapes to each other and I gave him a tape with a different song on the other side of the cassette and he put the cassette in the wrong way around and just heard me sort of singing on my own. And he came running upstairs and he said, what's this? And I was like, oh, that's nothing. That's just me sort of singing on my own. It's not an embrace song. And he said, oh, it's brilliant. Though. I love it. And I was like, well, it, it doesn't really sound like us. And he said, well, what do we sound like? At the moment, we just sound like a mix of our influences, which were like, you know, Joy Division, Echo and the Bunny Men, The Cure, U2, all that sort of stuff. Whereas this sounds like us. It doesn't sound like anyone else at all. I was like, oh, okay. And he must have been really determined to uh, sort of get it in the set because he worked really hard to get this really cool guitar part for it. Uh, and then when we did it in the studio, it was like, ah, right, yeah. It made all the other songs look really not very good. So it sort of scrapped <laughs> everything else. And that's, I guess, the beginning of Embrace. We started putting together songs around Retread and the set list grew and grew and grew from there. What kind of your first sort of outings live? What were they like? How old would you have been actually when you did sort of your first gigs? Uh, the first ever gigs, R Richard sort of started the band. Mike joined when Rick was 18. So I'd have been 20. So the first sort of early gigs, I was sort of between being sort of 20. And we didn't get signed until I was 26. So those early gigs were sort of early 20s. I was in my early 20s. Um, and we didn't play that much live, uh, like a lot of bands sort of do a gig every week or, you know, try and get out there as much as possible. And we, we didn't think that was important. We thought the songs were really important. So we just forgot about playing live and just constantly rehearsed and wrote new, new stuff every week. And the classic thing would be each week we'd write a song that was so good, we'd scrap the rest of the set and start <laughs> again. So my mate, I'd be saying, like, how many songs have you got? And I'd say, like, we've got three. And he said, well, we had, like, 11 last week. And I was like, yeah, we wrote another. And then just seven of them look rubbish now, so we've scrapped them. So it's constantly a sort of case of evolving like that. And so we didn't do that many gigs. But when we did do gigs, we were really good, actually. I mean, before we, before we even had any, any, you know, before we'd written Retread, we still really, we had, like, a really big local following we, we'd get you know, like 100 or 150 people crammed into these small venues, which for a local band is, is really good, you know. And mm. 
and we'd come from all over to see us and we were quite a spectacle um really sort of pretty intense and uh, in a lot of ways as good live as we've ever been you know the songs maybe weren't as good and you know we weren't as good technically but i think there was a real there was a real buzz about us really early on so with with regards to sort of playing live and the stage presence aspect of it what 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 other bands were you kind of conscious of or were you, you like did you have any kind of peers or or um you know influences in terms of your stage oh, for presence? me for me it was always ian mcculloch ian curtis uh from joy division um michael stipe yeah and, and for richard it was like people like terry bickers from the house of love uh yeah. john squire obviously stone roses um uh, yeah, so I, I guess everybody in the band had different influences. I know Mike was a big, big sort of fan of of John Bonham. Yeah. And then Steve, later when Steve joined, Steve likes everything from like the Stranglers. He likes a lot of punk stuff. Um, so all of us had different influences. And I guess that what that's what makes you a, an original band is, you know, if you, if you all like the same thing, you just end up sounding like that band. Was everybody kind of... Uh, able to sort of pitch in in terms of songwriting and, and bring in their own kind of spin on things? Um, originally, when before I wrote Retread, we used to just jam as a band and, and sort of wrote songs together. Uh, but after I wrote Retread and sort of discovered how to write songs, then it was mainly me writing the songs and then Richard, with Richard helping me, and then Richard started, and then Richard gave up his day job and he started writing songs. So it was like, right, okay, all the songs are written by me and Eric. And 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 that sort of lasted right through until more recently on, on the Out of Nothing album when we started returning to doing jams again with youth, the producer sort of conducting us a little bit. And, and on this new day where the majority of that was jams with the band, uh, but I was still writing all the melodies and lyrics and stuff. And Rick was quite often coming up with the riffs. It was just all done in the room, you know, all of us together. In terms of like your songwriting then and lyrics, what were you drawing on in terms of the content of those songs? It's mainly usually like heartbreak and, and, and you know, the sort of stuff that really is hard to put into words. I yeah. tend to get gravitated towards that the stuff that is hard to talk about in conversation is sort of left unsaid. And I think, I think that's where it's like, there's an, there's an itch there that you can't scratch in any other way. And writing lyrics can be really cathartic. You know, it sort of helps you to get down in some form, even if it's just like, even if it's a melody and the words don't really make any sense sometimes you can really feel something you know I can quite often listen to singers who aren't even singing in English and still be really moved by you know the melody or you know the tone and stuff so it's, it's a much more visceral uh, form of communicating it's really instinctive and um, I really like that and yeah. I feel I know when I've got something you know I know you can sit there with a the guitar for days and nothing sounds great and then suddenly you get something and it's like just makes everything just makes you feel worthwhile like you've got a purpose like like there's a reason you're here which is the most amazing feeling and it never gets old you know i remember i wrote a song called the love it 
Hicks and I got the chorus. It was just saying, you know, give everything I own for, for what it takes. And, and, and as that, as yeah. I got that, I started like, like the hairs on the back of my neck went and, and tears started pouring down my face. And it was a really sort of cathartic moment, a sort of realization. You know, when you get that, it's like then you build the song around that feeling, you know? Yeah, I, I, I think initially when you're, st- you're starting to put something together and you have the melody and you're strumming on an acoustic, which is the way I used to write, and then you would just be singing anything that came to your head. But that, that golden kind of lyric that kind of then would just, everything would fall out of that. It was almost like, you know, opening a zip bag and just, you just needed that one that one line to sort of just let everything out and then and uh, everything just seemed to come together it's a great feeling it's like you say it's cathartic and it's it's just great for the soul isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah but it doesn't last very long like you feel <laughs> great for maybe an hour or so and then it's back to the you know you've got to, you've got to write another now you know did you put yourself under a lot of stress in terms of you know writing yeah i mean in the beginning we told everyone in the world that we were going to be the best band in the world you know we said like we're going to be like the beatles would have been if instead of arguing with the beach boys they just allowed brian wilson to join you know (laughs) and uh, it's like you know but not only that with the sort of sly and the family stone sort of funky edge as well and like it's like (laughs) there's no limit to our ambition and and there never has been, you know, I've always wanted to sort of create something that's much more special than, than I could ever be as a person. And that's always been what's driven me. And, you know, I think, I think we've done it a handful of times, you know, we've, we've, we've achieved something that's far greater than we ever had the right to believe, you know, and mm. I think some of that is just down to dogged determination and, blind faith and ignorance um and i think you know when you're a young band you need a bit of that because the rest of the world all thinks you're a joke you know until you get some success it's like yeah you just you got you're a dreamer with your head in the clouds and then suddenly you get a record deal and you, you, your records in the charts and suddenly you're a genius you know it's like mm. still the same guy still the same yeah uh, you know still trying to create something special is is, is is always the thing and yeah you compete against yourself but you also compete against the best and I always remember like uh, before we got a record deal I would stick I am the resurrection on by the stone roses and just think oh my god I'm never gonna better do that <laughs> yeah and and you know I don't know that we ever have but I think in a song like oh you good good people we've sort of done our our take on that big you know, sort of bliss out, epic number, you know. When did it all start to get interesting for you in terms of, uh, you know, getting signed? Um, I think it was like 1996, 95, 96. We started doing showcase gigs and um, Hut Records came along to one of them. And I remember David Boyd was this short guy with blonde long blonde hair and he came running up to me and just out of my peripheral vision I just assumed he was a girl <laughs> and uh turned to face him and he pretty much jumped on me and hugged me and said I've got to sign your band and I was like oh yeah great let's do it and then and then he said I'm the I own Hook Records and it was like well at the time they had like Smashing Pumpkins and Placebo and The Verve and all these great bands and I was like wow great 
Yeah. So we went down to meet them, and uh, and their place was like uh, it was like Hut Records was like a little bedroom in the top of Virgin. It was like in the loft. And there's all like throws and 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 soft furnishings and 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 vinyl albums and candles everywhere. It was like a hippie commune or something. <laughs> and I just thought, I, I love these. It's these. Let's let's do. And we cancelled all the rest of our meetings and just ended up going with hooks. I just thought they were great. Did they give you like a good sort of freedom creatively to do what you wanted? And yeah, we did just did whatever we wanted. Record company never said anything. You just yeah, whatever you want. Just keep doing the good stuff. <laughs> that was pretty much it. <laughs> so, so, did you know really who you wanted to work with in terms of production, or did they sort of come to you with sort of sort of ideas on that run, on that front? No, we were we we'd done most of the first album we did with a local guy called Dave Crefield, who was who was really good, you know. And mm. um, we sort of had in our mind that wouldn't it be nice to work with, you know, some big names like Butch Fig or. I think you know we 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 looked at working with uh, Andy Wallace and uh, Steve Osborne and Johnny Dollar and we worked with loads of different people on all the EPs that we were doing at the time, but every time we'd go back to uh, working with David Creffield on the album, just because I don't know, we felt like we had a better idea of what we wanted than anyone else. Everybody else seemed to have a sort of preconceived idea of what they thought we should be, and yeah. and and we. We were in, we we felt like we were inventing it, and so how would anybody know? You know, um, if there was a mold for us to fit into, then what's the point of us existing? If it's already been made before, there's no point in doing it. So we we, we didn't feel like there was a rule book or that there was a, a preconceived way of doing it. Mm. Um, and so yeah, we met a lot of people, and and then ended up going back to the guy we did the demos with and it wasn't really until the very end of recording the album when we were just so burnt out that eventually we we, we got in touch with youth and he he sort of came along on the last lap mm. and really helped us run that last lap and you know, it was like handing over the baton to Usain Bolt or someone, you know, he really took it and 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 made made the album everything that we we wanted it to be at the end. Um, came in and we re-recorded all you good good people and we recorded uh, come back to what you know and then he helped us mix the album, and he was great. He really helped um, sort of us get what was in our heads to come out of the speakers in a, in a in a really good way. I guess then it was kind of sixth gear from then on i mean in terms of schedule were you just playing uh and touring uh, relentlessly yeah it was really mad like we we didn't get we didn't really get any time off until the third album so like even weekends we'd be like working every day if we weren't playing live we'd be working on the next album and um yeah it was it was pretty 24 7 you know it was really full on but you know it's what we dreamt of doing Mm. And, you know, before that, I'd been working on a building site or, you know, whatever the rest of us had been doing as day jobs. We didn't want to go back to that. And so it wasn't really work. It was like sort of the chance to do what all of us had always wanted to do. So it wasn't really like work. You say that you were writing or conscious about writing as much material for the second album. Was there a pressure to sort of deliver uh, on, on that 
and especially for you in terms of lyrics and songwriting, how did you physically, how are you physically able to do it with all the touring and, and, and sort of the schedules that you had? You just, you just have to do it just every day. Like don't give yourself a break. Yeah. I warm myself into the ground. I, I think probably if you look at it since I started in Embrace when I was, let's say I was about 20 and I'm 49 now. So probably out of those 29 years, I've probably spent at least, you know, taking into account sleep and stuff. I've probably wasted at least a decade banging my head against a wall. Not getting <laughs> so, I mean, I'd like to just distill all that time and just have the time, you know, the sort of year or whatever I spent actually getting good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Just keep that and then have those 10 years back. It would be great, you know. But yeah, I just basically would just bang my head against a wall working until something came, you know. In terms of um, like festivals as well, you you kind of epitomised what like what a festival band should be in terms of just songs that your fans and the crowd could sing and sing back to you. And what, what, <laughs> yeah. what, what were those... Um, what were those kind of early festivals like? I mean, I know you've been playing festivals throughout your career, but those those kind of first outings on those stages, what were they like? They must have been amazing. Um, it was really exciting. You know, we'd go on and uh, there'd generally be a really big applause because of the amount of hype that there was around the band. Mm. Um, but then when we went off, the applause was much, much bigger. You know, it was like, really felt like we were converting people as we went, you know? Mm. I think that's where the band, one of the one of the real strengths of the band is playing live. And I think it always has been, you know, there's a real, there's a real atmosphere when we play. And it's as much about the audience as it is about the band, but it, was, it gets pretty magical. You know, most nights are, are magical, you know, and, that's pretty rare, you know. I got to see a lot of other bands and even bands I really love and it doesn't feel the same, you know. And was it a conscious decision for all of you just to put 100% into every performance? For many bands, getting signed, that is the ultimate goal, playing live, growing an audience and things and doing their passion for a living. But you, you do see the complacency sometimes with regards to, you know, maybe a venue doesn't sell out or, and you know, you can see sometimes that they're not quite there in the room. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a, like a Northern work ethic or something maybe. Yeah. You know, we've, we've sort of, I think if we felt like we didn't give it everything, then we'd be letting each other down, you know? You were writing, recording and touring relentlessly. When was the decision to sort of try and do things you know, in, in a more of a homegrown approach or in terms of your own label? You, you formed your own label, Magnetic North, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we've always sort of had that uh, spirit. I mean, even when we were signed to Hook Records, we had our own label, Mo Better. Mm. Um, so we've always sort of wanted to maintain control of what we were doing. And more recently, uh, record deals are sort of licensing deals rather than the sort of old-fashioned record deals. And that gives you more control again because basically you make the record and then the the record company, if you like, they license it out. And when we got dropped from uh, Hook Records after the third album, we uh, built our own studio. And so we were then able to record our own stuff without having to go and hire big expensive studios and producers and stuff. Um, and while 
you know, then we went on to make the fourth album, which cost an absolute fortune and <laughs> was our biggest ever album. Uh, just went recently, just went double platinum and it was the biggest record we ever made. Uh, and then went on to have another number one album. After that, we had a big break. We were away for, I think, we, we were away as a band for about three years and then the album took about another three years to write and record. So, and we did that all in Richard's studio. And that was when, yeah, it became much more of a sort of DIY ethic. Mm. Um, just because how Richard has become a really good producer now. Um, he learned a lot from youth, um, but also all the other great people that we've worked with over the years. And, you know, Richard now is as good as any of them, I think. I guess you're able to just come in and come and go as, as you please. You're either, do you live near each other or is it near the studio or is it? Sort of... uh, we do now, yeah. I used to live in London, but I've moved back up north more recently. So, yeah, we do all live fairly near to each other now. And, um, yeah, the last album, Love is a Basic Need, um, the last, last studio album, uh, we were able to record it all at Rick's. And it was just a case of uh, following the good ideas and following the inspiration. And, and I think that the album really benefits from that because it's, mm really natural and instinctive and i'm really proud of that album you know so it leads on to the the secret list in a way really in terms of how you're looking at releasing your music now that was just it was born out of the fact that we couldn't play live anymore and and we have this enormous archive of embrace stuff dating back to even before we got a record deal so those early gigs that I mentioned where, you know, Rick was 18 and I was 20 and, you know, we, we get quite a big life following um, those early gigs there on there all the way through to, you know, the new album that, that the, the recording sessions for that will be on there. And there's, there's loads of films that we've, that we've been making sort of documenting, the last 30 years essentially yeah. of the band um, and we release new new tracks every month we get three new tracks each month um, uh, and most of them are from the archive they're like pieces of music that I couldn't get lyrics for you know that I might have worked on for the good while out or for out of nothing but I couldn't get uh, the right words or whatever um, I just songs finished songs that didn't fit for whatever reason mm. uh, and the fans are really loving it you know um it's gone really well and everyone seems to think it's great so i think we'll we'll keep doing it for a while you can subscribe you go on patreon and type in embrace the secret list and you'll find it and it's really good like mm. we do we're doing stuff pretty much every day on there you know whether it's a blog or uh, you know, uh, a, a bunch of photos or a, or, a, or, a, or a film that we've put together from the second album or whatever, you know, it's, it's something you come out you know, every week. Out of nothing, uh, this new day of currently, you've, you've remastered, and there's also, in terms of like the vinyl resurgence, I know it's kind of, that's already been and gone, but still people are buying a lot of vinyl. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a, an amazing platform to get people to hear the music in a completely different way. Um, well, yeah, I mean, like 16 years after Out of Nothing came out, 
last week we went the the vinyl album almost got into the top 10 it went to number 11 in the charts so that's pretty amazing after so long uh you know without any big marketing campaign or even a single or anything to you know to be getting back up there again after all this time is really good have you found you sort of feel like you've acquired a new fan base through this sort of activity um well it is growing i mean the latest gigs that we did are some of the biggest that we've ever done. Um, you know, last year we played at the Peace Hall, which is much bigger than we ever played when we when we first released Out of Nothing. Um, I think back then we did the Civic in Halifax, which is about a third of the size of the Peace Hall. So, and then, yeah, the last gigs that we did, we did uh, Leeds Arena and uh, Manchester Warehouse and and Ali Pallet, who nights in London. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just been, yeah, we're just getting bigger and bigger all the time. It's great, isn't it? And considering everything that, you know, you would think that the record industry in, in some ways it seems to have changed so much and uh, unrecognisable for even from the 90s and, and, and the fact that uh, there are still bands like yourselves, the back catalogue and, and the new material as well is just so strong that it, could still, it can still deliver and people just come again and again. It must be really, it must be so rewarding for you. That's what well, that's, I mean, that's the, the, the crucial thing for me is that the new stuff is as good as the old stuff. And yeah. when we're working on an album, we're mindful of the legacy and don't want to be one of those bands that goes off the boil and doesn't know when to quit. And, yeah. um, you know, I think on the new albums, songs like All That Remains and Never are as good as anything off the albums before. And Refugees, you know, and Thief on My Island are as good as anything off the first album. And, um yeah, I mean, I mean, when we do a set, it it genuinely does. Uh, it is a balance of all all the records from the whole of our sort of twenty odd years as a band, and there's never a moment. I don't think there's ever an album where all the fans go for a piss. You know, it's <laughs> quite. We have been pretty consistent, and I think hopefully the fans know that when we when we release album eight that'll be as good again you know and and that's it's hard work and and but that's you know that's what i'm doing at home during lockdown working yeah. on it when might we see the new album uh well me and rick were going to get together last week but unfortunately we were we were pointing the lockdown um uh so hopefully in the next couple of weeks uh we'll be able to get together and go through all the ideas that we've got. I've got a big list for album eight and uh, some great stuff on there. Richard's, Richard and mainly Richard, but also Mick Mack and Steve have been sending me ideas every month, every week. Um, and, you know, maybe for every every dozen or so ideas this send me, I'll get a spark of something that well, I think, oh, this could be really great. I'll get a really good melody or whatever. And now I've got a list. I've got a good list for the next album and stuff that I think is really great. So, Excellent. yeah, it's pretty exciting. Hopefully we'll get recording it beginning of next year with any luck. Do you and Richard have some sort of like, uh, have you developed some sort of communica- way of communicating with each other? Because obviously you're brothers and you've been working together for so long in terms of the music. What's the relation like, relationship between you two like when it comes to that sort of environment? 
making music, we we don't bullshit each other because we're brothers. We just you know say how it is. There's no politics. There's no we don't mix shit sandwiches for each other. You know where we try and bury bad news in the middle of a load of good news. You know so. Mm. We, we quite you know when you're working creatively with people sometimes you have to give them an ego massage before you tell them the bad news you know <laughs> so yeah, you know yeah. like, i really like this song but you know whereas with me and rick it's just like nah not feeling it you know <laughs> it's dead simple it's really three brain cell um and you know sometimes rick's wrong sometimes I'll have to argue my case and Rick will back down. And then sometimes I'm wrong and Rick will, Rick will argue his case and I'll back down. Um, but generally, if we're both sort of nodding and tapping our feet, it's a really good idea. Well, I really look forward to um, hearing the new stuff and hopefully getting to see you guys play live again soon when all this lockdown stuff ends. Thanks again for coming on, Danny. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Uh, to oh, my pleasure. My pleasure, Chris. And good, good luck with the podcast. I mean, so many Embrace tracks just make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. They're just amazing. Massive thank you to Danny for coming on and speaking to me on the podcast. I was a little bit starstruck, if I'm honest. I held it together just about. It's amazing what some heavy editing can do uh, to make you sound coherent. So again, this is the bit where I ramble. So if you're listening to the podcast and you're really enjoying it, I really appreciate that. That's fantastic. If you want to contribute financially, you can do. I mentioned on previous podcasts that I have a a Ko-Fi page. That just lets you buy me a coffee. It's £3. The link to that is in the show notes. On social media, just search for Back to Britpop. If you're listening to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, that app, you can write a review, rate and subscribe because that really helps as well. I say that every week. I know I'm like a broken record. So that's it for this episode. Hopefully there's more before Christmas. Um, But in the meantime, see you later.